0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
1: The FT You're listening to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. This week, civil war beckons in Libya.
2: It seems to me that what you could end up with is a prolonged stalemate in which Libya begins to resemble a bit Somalia.
1: And the political jostling across the Middle East.
2: The mere rumour that Saudi-armoured vehicles had crossed the causeway linking the kingdom to Bahrain caused a crash in the Saudi stock market.
1: Trouble in Europe with high-profile government resignations in Germany and France.
0: Michel Murray handled the situation appallingly. When when it was first discovered that she'd actually accepted a flight from a businessman that was connected to the Ben Ali regime, uh, she didn't actually tell the whole truth.
1: But first to the Middle East. Joining me in the studio to discuss the situation there is our international affairs editor, David Gardner. David hopes for a quick dispatch of Colonel Gaddafi seem to be dwindling a bit. It looks like Libya may be heading in for a really quite prolonged conflict.
2: It is beginning to look that way. Let's be clear, I don't think Gaddafi can ever again be the leader of Libya, that is his entire country. It seems to me that he doesn't have the military wherewithal to recapture the country. And in that sense, you could say he's finished, but clearly he's going to make a fight of it. He seems to be well dug in around Tripoli and Sirte and so on. It seems to me that what you could end up with is a prolonged stalemate in which Libya begins to resemble a bit Somalia. You could have that situation. And what would shift it? What would shift the balance? It's very, very hard to know. Gaddafi appears to be down to a fairly loyal core. The question then is, are there people within that entourage who see some sort of future for themselves, but none for Gaddafi.
1: And meanwhile, with all the focus on Libya, the world's attention slightly swung away from the other troubled spots in the Middle East. But Bahrain, which was getting a lot of attention, seems to be flaring up again.
2: There appears to have been, certainly we're reporting this, fighting in a town just south of the capital, between generically between Sunni and Shia. And there are some reports that these are Syrian Nationals recently granted citizenship in Bahrain. We know that the ruling family employs such people in their security forces. And it's hard to know. The details are still very sketchy. But it could be construed, possibly, as the sort of attack that was launched on the protesters in Tahrir Square. That situation is really very, very tense indeed on both sides of the border. Bahrain and Saudi Arabia. The Saudi royal family has generally tried to stiffen the backbone of the Al Khalifa in Bahrain to prevent them from giving the sort of concessions to their Shia majority population that the Shia across the border in eastern province, where all the oil is, would then demand from the Saudi royal family. And indeed, yesterday and overnight, there were small protests on the Saudi side of the border in Katif and Awaniya, following the arrest of a Shia cleric late last month after he had called for constitutional monarchy, precisely what is under discussion in Bahrain.
1: So how anxious do you think the Saudis are? I mean, in some ways, they must be the most well-prepared of all these regimes, so they've got so much money.
2: Yeah, and by God, they're hosing it around. I mean, the king came back after several months of operations in the US and announced a $36 billion package to damp down any possibility of revolt. The Gulf Cooperation Council is now considering packages variously estimated at between 4 billion dollars for Bahrain billions for Oman to damp that down almost immediately early this morning Saudi secret police arrested two journalists in two western journalists in eastern province yes extremely tense the mere rumor earlier in the week that Saudi armored vehicles had crossed The causeway linking the kingdom to Bahrain caused a crash in the Saudi stock market.
1: Well, it sounds like it's a subject we'll be returning to in the coming weeks. So uh, thank you very much indeed for now. It's not just in the region itself that the Middle East crisis has been claiming political victims. This week's seen the resignation of Michel Aliot-Marie, the French foreign minister. Joining me on the line from Paris is Peggy Hollinger, the FT's bureau chief there. So Peggy, why is it Michelle Aliou Marie who who was the one who ended up having to resign?
0: For starts, Michelle Aliou Marie handled the situation appallingly when when it was first discovered that she'd actually accepted a flight from a businessman that was connected to the Ben Ali regime. Uh, she didn't actually tell the whole truth. She said, "Yes, I took a flight, but he just happened to be in the airport. He's an old friend of the family." Uh, I had no contact with the regime while I was there. And then later, bit by bit, it it emerged that indeed it wasn't just one flight, it was two flights, that yes, she had spoken to Ben Ali while she was on holiday. And worst of all, that her family was actually there to do a property transaction with this businessman who actually had business interests in common with the Ben Ali regime. For a woman with the political experience of Michel-Anne Marie, it, it wasn't very clever. And it just meant that she came out looking perhaps trying to cover up rather than simply saying what happened. All of this raised questions over her judgment, over her honesty.
1: And did it perhaps play into a sense that France in general has been a bit too cosy with some of these regimes in North Africa, particularly the francophone ones such as Tunisia?
0: I think it's fair to say that all governments have had uh, sort of cozy relationships with many of these authoritarian regimes and governments. But it is true to say that there is a slightly special relationship with France. I mean, ever since de Gaulle took the view that he actually wanted to play up on the non-alignment with the United States as as a means of extending his influence in the region, because as with the demise of the the colonies, France really did believe that this was an area where they had an advantage that, that they could push their influence. And many subsequent governments have continued this. And also, we must never forget that France depends on the defense industry. The defense industry is one of its biggest contributors to GDP, and a lot of their weapons are sold to many of these governments in the region. So there are all sorts of reasons why France had particularly close relationships with many of these governments. Um, I think, though, that Partly this history, this pragmatism, this economic relationship meant that when the region did blow up, when the uprisings were launched, France was very reluctant to dive in there and say anything to take any kind of action. It was, first of all, caught off guard by the fact that no one saw this coming. Second of all, reluctant to interfere and be accused of a kind of a colonial approach. Third of all, afraid of jeopardizing economic relationships when we didn't really know where this was all going. And it sort of led to a hesitation and a slowness in responding. But then they were caught up by Michel Alion-Marie, the embarrassing affair of her relationships with these regimes that yet again, threw into sharp relief, these cozy relationships. And you have to remember, this all happened just after the Bagbo episode in Côte d'Ivoire, again, another one of France's special relationships, where an awful lot of the political establishment here had relationships with the Bagbo regime.
1: And now uh, there's a new foreign minister, Alain Juppé, who himself has quite a history. He's been uh, a former prime minister. He's been in semi-political disgrace. Now he's back. Tell us a little bit about him and how he can be expected to handle this.
0: Alain Juppé is political heavyweight in this country. Despite the fact that he had been banned from politics for a year over his role in a fictitious jobs scandal here many years ago with Jacques Chirac, uh, he still is highly respected. He is regarded as one of the, the cleverest and most experienced politicians. He ran the foreign ministry between 1993 and 95 and was regarded to be one of the best foreign ministers they'd ever had. But will this signal a huge change in France's relationship with North Africa? Actually, I doubt it. Remember, he comes from from the old guard of French politics. This is the man who, like all politicians, has had relationships in the past, not necessarily personal in the way that Michel-Elio-Marie had, but he did indeed receive the Rwandan foreign minister After the genocide had been launched uh, in Rwanda and after the United Nations had condemned Rwandan government for genocide, and yet when he was foreign minister, the Rwandan foreign minister was invited with great pomp and ceremony. And he is a pragmatist. You know, he will realize that the defense industry relies on many of these governments. It will be realpolitik. On the other hand, he will restore morale in the foreign ministry. He will be a sounding board and a good one for President Sarkozy for policy in the region because he will listen to his diplomats, unlike President Sarkozy, who has tended to ignore what he's been told. So I think in that sense, you'll get a much more professional approach. Will it be a significant change to the fundamentals of French policy towards North Africa? I doubt it.
1: Peggy, thank you very much indeed. On to Germany now and another resignation. Karl Theodor zu Gutenberg, the defence minister, has gone after a bizarre scandal involving the plagiarism of his doctoral thesis. Joining me on the line now from Frankfurt is Gerrit Weissmann. Many people outside Germany hadn't fully taken on board what a sort of glamorous figure that this chap was. Can you you explain why he commanded the attention of so many Germans?
3: Well, he's 39, he's handsome, he brill creams his hair, he spoke well and he spoke courageously about some of the issues that he had to deal with both as economy minister and then as defence minister. He is a baron the barons to Gutenberg. He is married to the great-granddaughter of Otto von Bismarck, he being, of course, the first united German prime minister. She is just as beautiful as he is handsome, and they have some nice, young, healthy kids. So in a way, they're just easily the most glamorous couple that German politics has to offer And that was just fodder, certainly for the tabloid press, that loved him. The quality press was always a little bit more reserved and always asked whether there was actually more
1: style than substance to him. This scandal that's brought him down was about plagiarising his doctoral thesis, so in effect playing into these these ideas that perhaps he wasn't as substantial as, as people reckoned.
3: Exactly. I mean, you could say he was pretending to be somebody that he wasn't. It turns out he plagiarized probably about a fifth of his doctoral dissertation. So he wasn't the doctor that he said he was. At first, he denied that there was any plagiarism at stake. And then within a couple of days, he had to admit the error of his ways. And the pressure increased on him when the academic community opened fire. And that's really when he had to go.
1: And how did it come to light? Was somebody doing some digging? And were you surprised that it proved this explosive? I'm slightly wondering whether in other countries, plagiarising a bit of your doctoral thesis would have been enough to finish off a political career? Maybe maybe it would have. Or is this something particularly German?
3: The question at the end of the day was, how believable is this guy? And if he's cheated on a doctoral thesis, then where else is he cheating? So I think it really sort of went to the core of that politician, or really goes to the core of any politician, you know, if you're lying about something like that, what else are you lying about? It was just normal academic due diligence, as far as I'm aware. There was a law professor at a university in northern Germany who'd been commissioned by a journal to review the dissertation. And in the course of his work, he came across, I think, 12 or or so passages that he proved to have been plagiarized and when this started basically the web community just went nuts and it you know in the end these web-based foragers showed that about 20 percent of the dissertation um, had
1: been cribbed. Now where does this leave the German political scene as a whole because or to put it another way how important was he to the government is he somebody that Angela Merkel the chancellor can afford to lose?
3: Well, I mean, it certainly doesn't help. He was a great magnet, especially for the party faithful. We have regional elections all over Germany this year, and we have a very important one in Baden-Württemberg, which is the CDU's heartland, Angela Merkel's party's heartland. And although he was a Bavarian, you could put him on the stage everywhere and people would come in droves, especially the party faithful. I personally think for the government, it's not going to make a big difference in the way the government works and what the government actually does and how it legislates, because his successor uh, as Defence Minister, Thomas de Mizier, who is a long-time lieutenant of Angela Merkels, is an excellent administrator. He's somebody who doesn't seek the limelight, and I think he will do a very good job of running that ministry. He, of course, has to implement now military service and armed services reform that gutenberg has sketched in outline but now you can really say the hard part is starting you know we've got rid of national service for young men But now we have to shrink down the army from 250,000 to 185,000. That means we have to close bases. That means that MPs are going to be upset. And of course, we have to talk to our arms industry to cut down on contracts that the government has already committed to, either politically or
1: legally. Thanks very much, Garrett. And that's it for this week. Thank you to David Gardner in the studio, Peggy Hollinger in Paris, and Garrett Weisman in Frankfurt. World Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Till next week. Goodbye.
2: For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.